I had a moment this week that you just can't ignore. I felt like God was talking right to me. It, I, I started reading a devotional when I go to work in the morning, you know, before the day gets crazy and, and while well, it's still a little quiet. And a few days ago, it was just this little paragraph from the Gospels. And Jesus asked his friends, who do people say that I am? <laughs> so casual. I can almost hear him asking it today, over drinks, maybe, with a friend on a summer night. So, what are they saying about me in Boston? <laughs> well, the disciples gave him the rumors of the day. That's not hard. It's easy to report what other people are thinking and saying. It's easy to repeat the, the popular opinion. So, he made it harder. He made it matter. Who do you say that I am? You know, as I read it, it seemed like most of those guys did not answer. <laughs> Peter did, and he got it right. <laughs> Good for him. <sighs> but I want to know about those other guys. What was going on in their minds? I keep hearing that question, that personal question. Becky, who do you say that I am? <laughs> you know, Jesus has been a lot of things throughout the course of my life. I, I grew up in a house where faith and church weren't important, where he was just a name, a myth, a religion I didn't believe in. Oh, once in a while, a, a good luck charm. You know, I, I'd say a prayer just in case, you know, for a big day or something like that, but I, I didn't expect much. <laughs> in my 20s, I made some friends who changed my life. I had never heard that God wanted a relationship with me. So I accepted Christ as my savior as a young adult. He was my savior, my redeemer. He was my friend. But, you know, my 20s turned into my 30s. My 30s turned into my... F yeah, let's just not go there. <laughs> but life, you know, it got in the way. My friends got married. They moved away. They got divorced. They took jobs. They lost jobs. And so did I. Oh, I was still a Christian. I still believe, more or less, sometimes less. You know, I, I don't know how it finally got to that point where my faith was nothing more than another charm on my bracelet, something else that I didn't do well. My, my small group, bless their quirky little hearts. <laughs> you know, though they showed me that I was drifting spiritually. You know, so I started asking questions and giving myself all these assignments. Um, how do I find time for the Bible? Where should I serve in church? Do I really have to go to small group this week? <laughs> and I think I've been asking the wrong questions. Oh, they're not bad, but 
like those other guys, you know, I, I feel like I'm dodging the big one. I, I wonder, did they just not know the answer? Or maybe they were afraid they were wrong. Or did they know that the answer would cost them something? Who do I, who does my life say that Jesus is? That's the question that it's time to answer again. Have you heard of decidophobia? It's a real thing. I didn't make it up. It's not just on Wikipedia. I found it on counseling websites and in medical dictionaries. Decidophobia, the fear of making decisions. It turns out it's not only a real thing. Most of us are probably afflicted with it. We tend to feel it most acutely when we're facing those big decisions. Where will I go to school? What will I do for a living? Who should I go out with? Which car should I buy? When should I retire? I mean, decisions like that can tie us up in knots for years sometimes. But decidophobia can also hit in some of the minor decisions of life. What do you want to do tonight? What color should we paint the bedroom? Standing in line at Bedford Farms. Moose tracks, mud pie, I don't know. <laughs> When decidophobia hits, we tend to do one of two things. We either vacillate, wavering back and forth, unable to make a decision, or we procrastinate, put it off, avoid, unwilling to make a decision. Either way, vacillating or procrastinating, either way, we're paralyzed. The fear, of course, is that we'll make a mistake. What if I make the wrong decision and now I'm stuck? So we want to keep our options open for as long as possible. The irony is that not making a decision also leaves us stuck. You can't go anywhere until you choose something. So as if all this isn't scary enough already, today we're going to be considering the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Way bigger than where you go to school or who you spend your life with or what you do for a living. And the question, of course, is what will I do with Jesus? What will you do with him? For 38 weeks now, we have been rediscovering Jesus here at Grace, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, Old Testament to New Testament, ancient times to our contemporary world. We have one more message to go next week. We'll get to the final chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the age and the life to come. But today on this final Sunday before summer, we want to call the question. After all that you've learned, all that you've discovered or rediscovered, what will you do now with Jesus? Now, some of our venues today, we're going to be doing some baptisms. And these are folks who are making a public decision to follow Jesus, declaring their decision. And that, that's a decisive moment for them. We want to celebrate that. 
But it turns out there are other decisive moments on the journey of faith. About halfway through our series, we looked at the spiritual journey diagram together. We identified some of the stops and checkpoints along the way from unbelief to full-blown followership. If you begin your journey as indifferent or skeptical, at some point you have to decide that Jesus is worth a closer look. If you've been confused or seeking, at some point you have to decide, are you going to cross the line and become a believer? But even on the believing side of the equation, as you can see, there are still decisions to be made when your faith gets stalled or revived or begins to grow and go again. Well, Becky, the small group leader we just met, finds herself at just one of those decision points along the way. After many years of following Jesus, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, she suddenly senses God speaking to her, calling her back, calling her deeper, calling her farther. And so she has a decision to make again. What will she do with Jesus? And it could be. Many of us have decisions we need to be making these days as well. So let's take a few moments this morning and think about the decisions that might be facing us uh, wherever we might be on our journey, about where we want to be in life. So to do that, we're going to go to a pivotal moment in the life of the disciples when they were faced with this very decision. So we're going to jump to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We'll look at verses 13 through 20. We'll just kind of walk through this conversation a little bit. We'll draw some observations along the way, and uh, then we'll have another one of our profiles in faith that we've been enjoying this spring, and then our baptisms. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, Matthew very intentionally calls our attention to the setting of this conversation. It takes place, we're told, in Caesarea Philippi. Now, that was a region, the very northernmost regions of, uh, of Israel, Israel's territory, right beyond at the northern end of Galilee there. And so Jesus has very intentionally pulled his disciples away, away from the crowd, away from activity, away from familiar places to a beautiful remote place where they can spend some time together. It also turns out that Caesarea Philippi was a pagan territory. It's surrounded and the landscape is dotted with pagan temples and shrines where people would worship or where they had worshiped in times past. At the same time, Mount Hermon was visible there in Caesarea Philippi. It's snow-covered peaks. It was the headwaters of the Sea of Galilee, a mountain rich with significance for the Jewish people. All this to say, it's a spiritually rich environment in which Jesus is asking this question. It's not unlike going off to Camp Brookwoods or Berea on a retreat or spending a week at Camp of the Woods with your church family pulling away to a beautiful spot, spiritually rich environment, in order to make some decisions about Jesus. I'm sure many of us could point to decisive moments at camp or on retreats or on mission trips. Let's get to the question Jesus asks. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now notice how he eases into the question. He doesn't ask for their opinion, not yet anyway, he says, what are other people say about me? It's an easier question. And that was an easy question because everybody's talking about Jesus at this point. After the things he's said and done, 
And so King Herod had thought out loud, has John the Baptist, who he executed, has he come back from the dead? Jewish people were more likely to look back to the Old Testament, to prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah, because there was an expectation that these prophets might come back again in anticipation of the Messiah. What I want us to notice is that people were putting Jesus into categories they were familiar with, people they had known from history, roles that were familiar and comfortable for them. And if we were to ask people today, who do you say Jesus is, they would give similar kinds of answers. A great prophet, a good teacher, a, 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 a social revolutionary, a spiritual guide, a guru. And those are reasonable answers to give after the things that Jesus said and did. But the problem is that those two are familiar categories. And none of them, all of them, are too small. They're too safe to describe Jesus. Teacher, prophet, guru, radical, revolutionary. They're not good enough. They're not big enough. They're not powerful enough. The, the, none of those shoes fit Jesus. He stands absolutely uniquely in all of human history. Never has been, never had been, even for those disciples, anyone like Jesus. And so Jesus asks, and he asks us, who do people say that I am? What are we going to do with him? So he gets more personal. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Well, now it's getting personal. This is not unlike a young woman sitting her boyfriend down and saying, we need to talk about where this relationship is headed. <laughs> and notice the edge Jesus brings to the question. He doesn't say, who do you think I am? But who do you say I am? And there's a difference. If I were to ask you, what do you think about Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? You, you could think all kinds of things. You could ramble on about this and that. You could talk about pros and cons. But if I were to say, what do you say about Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? Well, now you have to come out with it. Now you have to declare. Now you have to go public. And that's what Jesus is asking them to do. And notice how personal it is. In the original language, you is the very first word in the sentence. But you, who do you say that I am? And it's a plural you. So he's asking all of them. He's asking all of us. Who do you say I am? Now, I'm imagining there was a pregnant pause at that moment in the conversation. Like a bunch of school kids looking at the ground, hoping the teacher doesn't call on them. <laughs> Finally, good old Peter blurts it out. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's a bold statement. In the original language, there are four definite articles. You are the Messiah, the Son of the God, the living. Peter wanted there to be no doubt about what he was saying. This Jesus was not just the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. He was God himself here on this planet. He was saying, Jesus is like no one we have ever known before. There is no category for him. It was a remarkable declaration, so remarkable that Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, 
you know, you're a good guy, Peter, but you're not smart enough to come up with that on your own. <laughs> Only the Spirit of God could have revealed that to you. And that's an important moment for us. Now, certainly Peter has lots of information to go on at this point. He's been following Jesus for months, maybe a year or so. He's got all kinds of data points of things that Jesus has said and done. He and his friends, I'm sure, have had long conversations around the campfire as to who Jesus was. So he's done his homework. But now he's got to, this statement that he makes. It's so bold. It's so fresh. Messiah and God, only the Spirit of God could have revealed that to him. And a similar thing is true for us as well. We've been spending 38 weeks looking at Jesus, Old Testament to New Testament, things he said, things he did, things other people said about him. And we've encouraged you, use your mind, engage your brain, read, research, talk, ask questions, look at the evidence. Christianity is a reasonable faith, but it's still a faith. And so it requires a leap. It's not a leap in the dark, but it's a leap in the light. A decision not only to believe that these things about Jesus are true, but it's the decision to trust Jesus with your life, to trust your eternity to the love and lordship of Jesus. That's the decision. And usually, that decision comes in a holy moment. There's got to be a, a movement of God's spirit in our hearts something prompting, nagging, moving, stirring within us to, to, to raise a hand or to come forward or to pray a prayer or to turn in a card or do something to signify our decision. My guess is that many of us have had holy, decisive moments like that in our experience. My first was five years old, vacation Bible school, getting out of my seat and going forward to ask Jesus into my heart. It was a real moment but it was the first of many moments of choosing Jesus. And you've had moments like that as well. What we need to understand is that it's possible to resist those moments, to vacillate, to procrastinate, to dodge. A sudden attack of decidophobia hits us. Well, I don't know. But what if I'm wrong? What will my friends say, or my parents, or my spouse? What will this mean for my life? I need more time. I need more information. And we talk ourselves right out of the moment. Becky is in that moment right now. She senses the Lord speaking to her. Her small group has helped call it to her attention. And now she has to make a decision about Jesus again. And maybe you are in that kind of a spot as well. Don't underestimate the significance of the decision. The decision to trust and follow Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your lifetime. It's, it's way bigger than following Kanye or Gronk on Twitter. <laughs> it's way bigger than, than voting for Hillary or Trump. It's bigger than pledging a fraternity or joining a club or going vegan. This is a decision to trust your life and your eternity to the love and lordship of someone named Jesus, to put it all in his hands, 
to believe that he knows you, loves you, wants to spend this life and eternity with you active in your life. That's the decision. That you don't have to know everything about Jesus to make that decision. And you don't have to change everything about your life to make that decision. You simply need to say, I choose Jesus based on what I know. I choose to trust and follow Jesus with all of my life for all of my life. And the folks being baptized in just a few minutes are making that decision. They have, in fact, made that decision already. They're just going public with it today, sharing it with us. And it could be that you are needing to choose Jesus in some way right now. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. But we're not quite done yet. Jesus isn't quite done with this conversation. There's something else that he didn't want Peter or us to miss. Let's look at verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's all kinds of things we could be talking about here, but we just want to get to the, the key point. And the key point is the, is the church. Jesus brings the church into this conversation. We've been asking this foundational question all through this spring series. Where is Jesus now? And what is he doing? He tells us he's building his church. He's building his church. The thing is, we've already learned that Jesus is materially present in heaven. He ascended, remember? He's at the right hand of the Father. So who's going to build the church? You and me. People like Peter, who sometimes get things right and sometimes get things wrong. I hate to admit it, but Jesus is actually making a pun here. And I don't like to acknowledge that because it only encourages certain pastors among us <laughs> to continue to do that. But that's really what it is. You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, you think Jesus wasn't smiling to himself when he called this impetuous, unpredictable Peter a rock? You think the disciples weren't snickering under their breath when Jesus calls Peter rocky? The irony was not lost on them, but neither was the wonder of it. Jesus was choosing Peter. You see, when Jesus looked at Simon, he saw Peter. When Jesus looked at a brash fisherman, he saw a bold leader. When Jesus looked at a five-year-old boy at vacation Bible school, he saw a future pastor. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't just see you as you are. He sees you as you can be. He sees you as you were meant to be in relationship with him and his church. And there was a place for Peter in that church, and there's a place for you in that church as well. And that's what I want us to see here, the church. It's the first time this word appears in the New Testament. Jesus very del deliberately doesn't use the religious word for assembly. He doesn't talk about a synagogue. He uses a secular word, ecclesia, the called out ones. It was a word that was used to describe an assembly of citizens or an assembly of soldiers. 
Jesus wants us to know he didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a movement. He came to form a new community of people who would be formed into the people they were meant to be and go out to do his work in this world. And Peter was a part of it. And so were the 12, and so are you and me. See, when you say yes to following Jesus, you also say yes to his church. In the same breath that Jesus affirms Peter and his confession of faith, he also affirms Peter's membership in the church. And there's a place for you in the church too. You need the church. The church needs you. If you don't have a church home, you need Grace Chapel or someplace like it, and we need you. Becky needed her small group in all their quirkiness to get her attention and call her back and hear the voice of the Lord. And you and I need each other to help us hear the call of God on our lives and to help us say yes and follow. We need each other. So understand that baptism is not only a, a, a public declaration of faith, it's a public initiation into the life of this community called the church. People who are being baptized stand in a long, long line going back to the very birthday of the church of people who immersed themselves in the water and said, I belong to Jesus and I belong to his people and I'm not ashamed to say so. And if you've never made those decisions, then maybe those are decisions you need to make to follow Jesus or to be baptized. But as we said, those aren't the only decisions to be made. Once we make those decisions, life happens. We struggle, we fail, we learn things, we aspire to things. And so there are decisions all along the way to choose Jesus and to choose his church. And that's our lesson for today. We stay strong to the finish by choosing Jesus and his church again and again and again and again all the way through our lives. I don't know what decision you might be needing to make these days. Maybe it's the decision to start actually seeking Jesus thoughtfully after a time of indifference or skepticism. Maybe it's the decision after all of your seeking to finally trust Jesus with your life and eternity. Maybe it's the decision to be baptized and make a public profession of your faith. Maybe it's a decision to make a commitment to some local church through membership or giving or service. Maybe it's a decision to come back to the Lord or to come back to church after a long time of drifting or wandering or even rebellion. Or maybe it's a decision to, to go after the bold, grand thing that God is asking you to do next. Whatever it is, we stay strong to the finish by choosing Jesus and his church again and again and again. And in a moment, I'm going to give all of us an opportunity to make some of those decisions. But as you think about it, and as you think about what this looks like in a real person's life, I'm going to once again turn to one of our longtime Christ followers here at Grace Chapel and allow you to meet him. So would you welcome my friend Tom Kalatosti as he comes to the platform, <laughs> shares a little bit of his story. Tom is 
my first Grace Chapel friend <laughs> and longtime partner in ministry and leadership here at Grace and a longtime Christ follower. Tom, tell us a little bit how you got this journey started, a decisive moment, perhaps. We're first friends. I'm glad you came back. <laughs> um, I was very fortunate that I grew up in a Christian home. I cannot remember a time that I was not in church. In fact, one of the most dramatic memories I have as a young boy uh, getting up early because I wasn't feeling well and going downstairs and seeing my dad getting ready to, to go to work and he was on his knees praying at five o'clock in the morning. It was a profound impact that stayed with me to this day. But somewhere along the way, I became a teenager and I drifted and I rebelled, developed an attitude and turned far from God. But my dad never gave up on me and compelled me to go to church. Even at age 17, he still dragged me to church. And it was a Sunday night that I was there. I did not want to be there. I wanted to leave as soon as I could. But as I was sitting there, a sermon was given, and it was about Peter. It was about Peter's denial. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it convicted me that that's, in fact, what I was doing, was denying the faith that I knew as a child. I went forward, uh, answered the call, accepted Christ as a savior. My anger, my attitude disappeared, and I was filled with joy and peace and hope in this life and in the next. Mm. Sounds like one of those decisive moments that we've been talking about, and we need those. Um, but life happens after those moments at mm. 17 years old. So talk a little bit about how the Lord has been part of your journey since then. Well, I grew up in a city that uh, was 100,000 people and did not have a single evangelical church. I went through high school uh, without meeting and having a single evangelical friend. So very early on, I purposed that uh, I would try to witness by just doing an excellent job, by trying to live with integrity uh, and uh, excelling. Uh, two years after that event at the altar, I found myself uh, walking through the jungles and the rice paddies of Vietnam. And again, I determined uh, that I would show that Christians are not weak, that Christians can serve, that Christians can excel. And God spared my life, uh, and my faith grew. You learn things in difficult situations that you don't learn uh, when you're standing on your feet. And so all along the way, Christ has been with me. I then went into business, and we had to deal with some very difficult bosses. We could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about <laughs> difficult bosses and challenges, and certainly all of the things of life, near-death experiences, illnesses, death, family. Uh, and yet through it all, the peace of Christ, the hope of Christ, the purpose of knowing him, my faith continued to grow, uh, and we had our challenges, to be sure. Uh, we've been married 43 years. We have two sons and a granddaughter, and God has blessed us in every way in terms of uh, my business career and my family life, um, and it is because of Jesus. And if I remember right, you and Nancy met in church youth group? Is that we, we did meet in youth group. Um, you'll remember this. Uh, you'll relate to this story. I was the youth leader, uh, and she was one of my students. <laughs> we don't allow that sort of thing around here. <laughs> Uh, and then just talk a little bit, Tom, about the church. You know, it, what part has the church played in your journey with Christ? Uh, I have just come to realize that God had a purpose for my life. My life was spared, and I don't say that trivially. Uh, and I wrestled with, do I go into the ministry or do I pursue a business career? 
And it came to me that I could do more for the ministry by staying out of the ministry than going into it. And so I developed a, a, a business career. And it came to me that all of the skills that I had developed in business were the skills that the church needed to grow and to thrive. That the church had great teaching skills, great uh, theological skills, but it needed some business skills. And so I had financial skills, and that helps set the financial structure at Grace Chapel, uh, where we have wonderful systems and wonderful control, and you have great assurance that all of your donations are well handled. Uh, we had uh, business experience, and so we were faced with a very difficult decision of knocking down five buildings that were built over 50 years and replace it all with a new building. It was bold, it was risky. The town didn't support it, and the congregation was a bit anxious. Uh, and yet God gave us the wisdom to go forward in doing that. Uh, because of my management experience, I had the opportunity to hire a lot of people. And so when it came, as I served on search committees, to be able to identify high-quality, talented, committed, passionate people. <laughs> so these were real-life practical skills that we learned. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll give you one parting shot. Yeah, one more. Anything else you want me to say? I was just going to. I was just going to say that I love Grace Chapel. The church is the hope of the world, and I believe that God has called and has uniquely placed Grace Chapel here at this spot, at this location, with these resources, with this capability, with this kind of message to transform this region and influence the nation. And I'm thrilled to have been part of it, and I want to continue to be part of it. Amen. Me too. Thank you, Tom. So it turned out to be a pretty decisive moment for those disciples and Jesus. He gave them a choice, and they chose well. They, they said yes, and they followed him for the next leg of the journey. But as we know, they would have more choices ahead of them, and they would not always choose well. They would vacillate, they would procrastinate, and they would get it plain wrong sometimes. But Jesus kept giving them another chance another chance to choose him and his way. And that's what he does with all of us. And so it could be that you today have some decision facing you. We're gonna hear from these folks being baptized. It's a great moment for them, but, but you may have a decision you need to make as well. So I'm gonna lead us through a simple guided prayer. And as I do that, I'll mention some of the decision points that we've talked about along the way. And if one of them applies to you, then you pray personally into that prayer. If it doesn't apply to you, then just pray for those who are thinking about that decision. If you're not ready yet, that's okay. Use the time to think. After each of these prayer points, we'll respond together by simply saying, Lord, hear our prayer, and then we'll move on to the next one. So across our campuses and our venues and online, let's bow our heads together as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for calling us together today and for speaking to us personally from your word and your servants here today. Lord, some of us here today are ready to start seeking you after years of indifference or skepticism. All together, Lord, hear our prayer. Some of us are choosing to trust you for the very first time to forgive us and make us new. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. 
Some of us here are ready to follow you into baptism, to declare our faith publicly. Lord, hear our prayer. Some of us are ready to enter more fully into the life of your church through membership or giving or service. Lord, hear our prayer. Some of us are ready to come back to you after a time of being away. Lord, hear our prayer. And some of us are ready to surrender some aspect of our life to you that we might more fully be the people you have called and created us to be. Lord, hear our prayer. We thank you, Lord, for this year of discovery and these moments of decision. Thank you for meeting us here, for the assurance that these prayers have been heard and that you indeed lead us into the life you've created us to live now and forever. Hear our prayer. Amen.